Hello, everyone, and welcome to Finnerin's Wake, the channel of which I, Daniel Finnerin, your humble friend, am the author. Today's episode, to which I can't wait for you to listen, is an extraordinary one. I was joined by the man to whom I most look up, my father. Uh, he and I were reunited in Florida. He drove down here for a short while, all the way from New Jersey, and we spent an hour out on our back patio talking about politics, as all fathers and sons ought to do. The focus of our conversation is uh, the recent results of the midterm elections of 2022, which at this time have been somewhat saddening for those inclined toward the Republican Party. Uh, at this point in time, about one week removed from those elections, it appears to be the case that the United States Senate will continue in the control of the Democrat Party. There is one race outstanding, and that will occur as a runoff in the state of Georgia between the incumbent Raphael Warnock, a Democrat, and his Republican challenger, the great uh, running back of bulldogs and generals fame, Herschel Walker, about whom we'll be talking in this very episode. As far as the House of Representatives is concerned, it appears that if the Republicans are to achieve a majority, it will be by the slimmest of margins, possibly five to seven seats. And with that, I'll turn it over to my delightful conversation with my remarkable father, to whom I think you'll have a great deal of fun listening. Welcome to this episode of Finneran's Wake Family Edition. <laughs> I'm joined by my father, the man by whom I was sired, Rich Finneran. How are you today, Dad? I'm doing very good, Daniel. How are you? I'm doing quite well. So we are joined together at long last down here in Naples, Florida, um, where I live and where you occasionally <laughs> hang your hat, where you occasionally reside. Um, now, you're arriving here two days after the uh, much-vaunted midterm elections in which we've seen some surprising results. So just as a, a, a moderate, right-of-center voter from the state of New Jersey who has some flirtations with the state of Florida, what are your thoughts about the results that we've seen come in? Well, I will say I was a little bit surprised. I thought that the Republicans were going to do a little bit uh, better than they did do. Um, I thought that their messaging was a little bit more on point. I haven't uh, had a chance to look at some of the exit 
uh, poll information and uh, what the people were voting for, um, there were some things that I thought weren't really going to be that important, and uh, maybe they turned out to be pretty important. Now, is there any one issue about which you're especially curious as it pertains to those exit polls? Well, I thought there would be a much stronger emphasis on the economy. Um, but it was interesting because I came from New Jersey, as you'd mentioned, and uh, the first day we were in South Carolina, and of course the second day we were in Savannah, Georgia, and then we came south from there. But what I noticed in those two states were the cost of gasoline. Um, I think in Georgia it was $3.19 a gallon. So I don't think that the cost of fuel has hit the south in the same manner that it hit the north and that the way the people in the north sort of feel it in their pocketbooks. But that being said, I don't think, you know, New Jersey being mostly a democratic state, I don't think that the, uh, I don't think that the cost of fuel in New Jersey affected anyone's vote. But I will say that if the fuel costs were higher in the South, I think, and, and across the country, I think, uh, maybe the economy would have been a little bit more of a stronger pull in the election. So you think if gas prices were a little bit higher in, say, the state of Georgia, uh, there would have been greater enthusiasm and support for Herschel Walker? Correct. Yeah, I don't, yeah, and, um, yeah, I mean, I, th I think Walker's message was very similar to other Republicans. It was the economy first, border security, um, and um, you know, safety in the streets or um, policing. I don't think Warnock w was hitting home as much with that message. So if people aren't affected by gas prices, uh, maybe the economy isn't hitting people as hard in the South. Yeah, that, that very well may be the case. Um, it, it does seem to be now at this point in time it appears to be the case that georgia will have a runoff election so in georgia there's this peculiar uh, rule that basically states if you don't if you don't exceed 50 percent of the vote if you don't win 50 percent of the vote as a single candidate you proceed on to a runoff election which is what happened uh, a few years ago when you had the the Georgia elections of 2020, in which Warnock was vying for a spot, as well as John Ossoff. Um, now, Warnock was um, going to be contending for that seat again, and this is basically his second time vying for that for that seat in two years. So he's proven himself somewhat durable, uh, getting at least to that 48-49% uh, amongst Georgia voters. So he does go into this runoff with a lot of momentum behind him, I think especially now that we see how um, anemically the Republican Party performed in this election uh, cycle. So I actually think going forward toward that runoff election, I think that Warnock has a really good chance of, of claiming victory. Now, what do you think of that? I agree with that 100%. And the reason why I agree with that is I think... Herschel Walker probably had some coattails with Kemp. I think people probably voted Kemp 
and Walker. And now when you're going to ask people to split that vote, uh, and it, it, it also looks to the motivation to come out to vote. So are people going to be motivated enough to come to a sort of this runoff? Um, that remains to be seen. But I think that there were some coattails that Herschel Walker counted on. So I, I would think right now looking at things that Warnock is probably going to win this. Hmm. I share in that prediction. I actually, I think that the coattail effect wasn't as strong as you might indicate. I think, and I say that because governor, the incumbent, and, and now the, the con continuing governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, defeated Stacey Abrams by a very wide margin. One would expect that with such an overwhelming, uh, an overwhelmingly successful performance that Herschel Walker would have done a little bit better. So I think that a lot of people were more than happy to check the box for Governor Kemp and were very hesitant to do so for uh, Herschel Walker. And the reasons for their hesitancy, I think, are, are legion. Uh, he's not a particularly strong candidate. I think most people are in agreement over that fact. Now, you remember him fondly as the great Georgia University running back and as a New Jersey general. New Jersey generals, yeah. From the hometown. Um, <laughs> a team, I think, owned by a certain Donald J. Trump, if I'm yes. not mistaken. Yes. So, again, we're looking at a candidate who was championed uh, vocally and very enthusiastically by his former <laughs> boss to some, in some ways. Uh, and we have to examine the repercussions of that. Choosing a candidate based on the President Trump's personal, I don't know, affinity for this man, uh, while neglecting perhaps some of the uh, personal baggage that he brought with him. Now, the same can be said for Dr. Oz, Mehmet Oz, um, a famous celebrity doctor featured on television shows all across the nation, beloved by millions, um, endorsed by, or at least <laughs> in his doctoral role, uh, endorsed by and helped by Oprah Winfrey, by whom he was given his start. Again, another weak Republican candidate who didn't have a good, strong name recognition in the party, but was endorsed by President Trump in the primary and was able to defeat a much more viable and strong Republican candidate in Dave McCormick by about a thousand votes. And yeah, it, it's fine and good that this ex-president has the power to bring these kind of eccentric, peculiar characters over the finish line in primaries. But if it's all just to lose ultimately in a, in a general election, what, what's the point, really? I think that's what everyone's asking him or herself at, at, this, at this juncture. So I think there's going to be a lot of hmm, self-reflection uh, within the Republican Party. And, and this is what I want to ask you now. As someone who, like me, is a bit weary of 
former President Trump, appreciative of what he was able to do while in office, um, despite the headwinds against him from multiple directions, whether it be his uh, the FBI or the, in, the other aspects of the intelligence community or the mainstream media or what have you, a lot of these institutions against which he uh, had to battle. Um, but do you think his his role is still uh, do you think his light is still um, flickering or do you think that his influence um, at this point needs to be extinguished well extinguish is a harsh word um, but I think I, I know some people who are vehement Trump supporters and no matter what you say to them, they're not going to change their feelings about the past election. They're not going to change their feelings about Donald Trump. Um, but I think that their support is waning as time moves forward and as Trump starts to um, initiate the blame game, um, it, it, you know, to me, he's number one, he comes across as a very sore loser. He's out for revenge. And I don't know if that's necessarily good for the Republican Party. He, he supported some candidates, but, you know, there's talk within the Republican Party that he didn't give any of his war chest, his assembled war chest, to any of these candidates that he supported. Um, Ron DeSantis, on the other hand, um, he shared in his war chest, which looks good and is good for the Republican in, uh, Party in general. And again, as you said in the beginning of this presentation, I'm more of an independent voter. Um, so I can see, you know, internally what's going on within the Republican Party, kind of like from a six-mile view. And he's Trump does have vehement supporters, but I think as people take a more common-sense approach to his chances in the next presidential election, I think he's going to lose su support of some very influential people. And these are the same influential people who can sort of make you or break you in the primaries. So he's already attacking. He attacked Ron DeSantis on election day, which I thought was a real Bush League move. I think the day prior to election oh, day. Oh, was it the day prior? Okay. Again, I, I was so. I was traveling down, yeah. you know, yeah. I spent 20 hours in a car basically, <laughs> <laughs> you know, listening to Tra books on tape. Traversing but, the country, yeah, listening but, to Anderson Cooper's right, story yes. of... Vanderbilt. Uh, of, of his uh, Vanderbilt family. Vanderbilt Empire. Yeah, so, um, you know, to attack a candidate who is still in a viable election prior to Election Day is kind of like a real JV move. It's a Bush League move. It's, it's hey, I'm not in this election, but look at me. Right. I've got to keep calling attention to me. Right. He's an attention whore, and it's... Uh, you know, again, it's not professional, and we said that all along. We've said that from Jump Street, where, you know, he just couldn't stay off of Twitter. He just, he just, you know, 
his, he just needs attention. He just craves constant attention. And it's an ego thing. When, you know, it's kind of like on a parallel with the Vanderbilt family. And uh, it's, they, were, they were megalomaniacs, and it's uh, no different hmm. with Donald Trump. That's an interesting parallel to draw, that between the, the Vanderbilts, uh, of whom Mr. Cooper is a descendant, <laughs> yeah. and, and, uh, and Trump. Um, yeah, you, you make a lot of good points and sagacious, uh, keen observations. Um, You're only saying that because I'm your father. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, yes, there, there, of course, will always be zealots. There, there will always be people who are, um, unyielding in their support of any figure, any character, any sports team. You still root for the Giants. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there are Jets fans. These people exist, right? <laughs> Actually, so, the Jets are doing very well this year. <laughs> they just beat Buffalo. <laughs> <laughs> They're doing shockingly well, but, but uh, with the exception of this year. Uh, what my, the, point, the point remains is that you, you will always have um, ardent and perhaps unthinking supporters now the, uh, is that support base enough to carry a candidate like president trump a, a presumed candidate in 2024 we're, we're talking today on the 10th of november i think there's a pending announcement on the 15th of, of this very month that president trump will uh, <laughs> renew his efforts to vie for the 2024 election. So the, the, the question is, do these ardent zealot supporters um, give enough of a push? Do they give enough momentum uh, to bring somebody like this with so many negatives um, over the, the finish line? Uh, or are they just a big weight on the conservative movement? Again, as an outsider looking in, um, and, and it's especially true with Republicans in, in the whole primary phase, they've, they've got to, well, Democrats as well, in the primary phase, you, gotta, you have to appeal to a lot of different masters. So the Democrats have to appeal to the religious right. They have to, you know, there's this whole gauntlet that they have to run through bow down to, seek approval from. It's the same thing with the Democrats, and it seems like the progressive party um, has has a lot more weight now. So now if you're going to run as a Democrat, you have to show that you're green, you're for the environment, so you have to check that box. And, and, and it's funny that when I watched the Fetterman-Oz um, debate, Fetterman's trying to check that box, but he's, tr you know, that all along in his in for his history he's trying to check certain boxes during the debate he said he was for fracking but prior to that he said he, he was against fracking because because it was bad for the environment so you have to you have to check all these boxes you have to go uh, seek approvals from these I don't want to say special interests but special interest groups or or groups that can move you forward in the primaries Trump has has gone through that gauntlet he's he's been vetted through someone like and i don't i don't even know if desantis is going to run um, but someone like desantis has now got to go and you know go through that same approval process so the road may be a little bit longer for anyone who 
is going to challenge Trump or conversely, the Republican Party may just say, you know what, you're not going to have to run through this gauntlet because we don't want to put up Donald Trump. Right. We reject you as a party. We're, we, I think we're rejecting you. And so now I don't now as uh, you know, now I don't have to appeal to certain interest groups. But, but I think like a DeSantis does appeal to, you know, his his, uh, his you know, his his position on abortion His you know, it's pretty clear. And um, I think it's also important to note that you you mentioned Trump having won the approval of certain interest groups. Well, as a as a gubernatorial candidate, uh, Ron DeSantis did the same, and he did it successfully. And now he's done it successfully twice. He was a congressman. He, he did it successfully then. So it's not as though he hasn't um, acquired the, the approval of, of said interest groups. Um, but alternatively, President Trump has proven himself incapable of garnering that approval a second time. Um, right now, if you simply compare records, right, um, the candidates of whom Trump was most supportive are those that performed quite poorly. Um, those who were, by and large, uh, at the very least, um, uh, comfortable with disagreeing with President Trump, like Governor Brian Kemp, right? You'll remember the 2020 election. It was Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger, the, um, I believe he was the Secretary of State of Georgia, or, or he may have been Lieutenant Governor. I'm not sure his, his official role, his title. But these were two people quite staunchly opposed to some of the machinations that <laughs> Donald Trump was imagining in that period. The same can be said of, of Devine in Ohio, who, who, is now, who was the incumbent and has now won his race for governor a second time. The same can be said of Governor Abbott in Texas. The same can be said of Governor DeSantis in Florida. These are all men who um, quite valiantly, I think, dug in their heels, stiffened their spine, and stood up to the influence of Donald Trump. Uh, and look at the results. You have Ron DeSantis, the governor of this free and wonderful state, uh, defeating his opponent, uh, again, just as the Republicans can put forward bad candidates, the Democrats are guilty of that as well. They put forth Christ, and you know, he, of course, he was never expected to win, but I don't think he was expected to lose by 20 points. I think even the most um, auspicious polls for the DeSantis camp had him winning by about 10, 10 to 12. To win by almost 20 is quite a statement, uh, quite a promising statement, and one that certainly affirms the people's belief in in, in his ability to govern and to govern well. So it seems to me that those candidates who <laughs> are most dismissive of, distant from Donald Trump are those who are going to perform best. That's just my very sober analysis. Now, again, I'm someone who um, appreciates, appreciated and continues to appreciate so much of what President Trump did between the years uh, the fraught years of 2016 and 2020, uh, many of which were hampered by investigations and impeachments and all sort of entanglements, right, in, into which a normal president wouldn't, wouldn't walk. And he did. Um, but it seems to me that if you are going to cultivate uh, a winning party, a victorious party that that doesn't gain merely 10 seats <laughs> in a midterm election, 10 seats in the House of Congress, 
House of Representatives in a, in a midterm election, uh, then you, you need to do what works. And what works is the Texas model, the Florida model, the Tennessee model, the Ohio model. And these are all models that de-emphasize President Trump. Uh, it's difficult to hear this as a, as a Trump supporter, as one of these vehement zealots of whom we spoke earlier. But this is the truth. And the question is, do you want to be victorious? Do you want to instill a constitutional, conservative, rational agenda? Do you want good governance? Do you want competence? Do you want um, freedom? Do you want a restoration of our original liberties? Do you want uh, your children to be able to walk around their city block without fear of being molested or, or, or killed? Do you want them to be able to attend a public school without the same fears of being indoctrinated in, in grotesque and sexually deviant things or not? Now, if you're so committed to this individual that you're willing to sacrifice all those, all those things that could come with a DeSantis, an abbot, a divine, a a good a good leader a good executive well then you're merely subservient to a man and not to and 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 not answerable to a higher a higher power that power being well the constitution of this country right. the god you know, to whom we all pray um, greater things than just this mortal whose time came and has since passed i think i may have the bumper sticker Give, me, give it to me. What is it? <laughs> DeSantis 2024, a candidate without the drama. <laughs> because you work. know that could work. the drama is going to follow Trump. And, and, and people love drama for, for whatever reason. But it was funny when, when I looked at the election when it was Trump and Clinton. Um, it, it really wasn't palatable. I mean, those two tick, those two candidates just weren't palatable. I thought uh, we we were going to immediately have an investigation with either one of them. With Clinton, to me, it was going to be the computers and and the email, um, which seemed to sort of fall away. And and Trump had his own baggage, um, so I you know it was whoever was going well, to get voted in. Well, that baggage is. May have been and, and, may have been manipulated in some ways, right? right? So you have to remember that, right? But as that a, Clinton was investigated during the campaign, and James Comey famously came forth toward the end of the <laughs> campaign cycle and um, curiously announced that that she probably did things that should be punishable, <laughs> right? But that they and, they wouldn't I, recommend but, prosecution. But as someone who's been involved in in government and someone who's been involved in security, you know, I knew that she was doing the wrong things like it was definitely created a vulnerability and it's things that regular employees at companies aren't allowed to do so um, I had issues with that you know um, but I, I would say that again electing electing Trump he's already I mean he's already embroiled in a, a tremendous amount of drama now is some of it 
I'll say, I don't want to say trumped up, but is some of it trumped up? Is some of it a little bit trumped up? Yeah. Um, but you know that if he gets into office, it's just going to be a constant news cycle of issues that he's going to have to address, that he's going to have to defend. And quite frankly, I'm looking for a president who can move this country forward because we're in a morass right now. And it's just, it's terrible. I mean, it's, I've never seen anything like this. And I guess people are whistling past the graveyard. And I know people still support the current president. Um, but economically, it's been a disaster. It really has. Yeah, you, you used a few words that I think are worth um, emphasizing. Morass, right? A feeling of being stuck, of not moving forward. Uh, this is an idea um, with which I've been grappling for a while now. We have this aged, decrepit, old, impotent, incompetent, senile, um, ruling class. Right? You're being this, kind. <laughs> <laughs> I say that the gerontocracy, right? This is this is government by the elderly, and these are not. Our best elderly of the of the elderly. Right. I've, I, uh, having worked in hospitals for for years now, I've 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 met and interacted with many quite impressive elderly individuals, well into their nineties, octogenarians, nonagenarians, people who are who are touching the very ceiling of life in their hundreds, um, who are quite intellectually active. Uh, the ruling class that we see before us with all their years, with all their accumulated years, I think pale in comparison to some of these, <laughs> these elderly individuals with whom I've interacted. Uh, we're looking at uh, President Trump, who's 74, 75 years of age. We're looking at President Biden, who's 78 or 70, 79 years of age. Um, Nancy Pelosi, well into her 80s. Chuck Schumer and, and Mitch McConnell, equally old. Uh, we look at some of our Supreme Court justices who like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, wait until the, the very last gasp of life to, to, to hold on to their positions. So that, I think, is a really significant problem that com goes completely unaddressed. Um, now, it seems like it's, it's almost maybe your generation and maybe the generation that's a little bit younger that seems unable to fill this leadership void in some ways. Um, I don't know what exactly is happening. And now, I, you talk about looking forward. What someone like President Biden, who's almost 80 years of age, and, and let's just say in loose control of his cognitive faculties right. on, on a good day. Um, is he looking forward to a legacy? What, what, what exactly is he governing for, right? Is it just the enshrinement of his, and the, um, the augmentation of his power, the, the consolidation of his legacy? Like these are people who are at the very end stages of life. To me, that's a bit troublesome to think that so many elderly people are running this government and running it very poorly. Yeah, and I, it's interesting. I had a conversation with my sister, um, and she's a few years older than I am, and I'm in my 60s, early 60s, and I, I, you know, I basically told her that I don't feel like I did when I was in my 40s. I'm not as sharp, and you've noticed it, um, Hardly. <laughs> you're, you're, you have more hair. You're more handsome. <laughs> too kind. Too kind. 
but um but i th i th you know again the, the 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 stress of those types of positions they put 10 years on you in in five years um but i think that there's a certain segment of elderly i mean the country is getting older with medication we you know we're living into our 70s and 80s and uh, and simultaneously the birth rate is declining right it's it's a very like i said it's a troublesome right and so i think that fact. people in their because they're living longer and they're in their 60s and 70s and 80s they're they're like you know you go boy you know what i mean like hey he's one of us and look at look at him in and and he's got my vote huh and um i'm i'm telling you um i for either party i will not vote I will not vote for someone who's going to be eight in their 80s as a president. There's absolutely no chance. So I will pull the. And if I were to accuse you of blatant ageism, ageism, how would you respond? I would respond that I am just doing what I feel that I would that I am incapable of doing at in my 60s, you know, I don't think that I'm projecting my life for another 20 to 25 years and saying there's no way that this person is going to be as competent as someone in their 40s or 50s and maybe early 60s. I mean, it's just I'll pull my Ross Perot card and vote independent. I'm just not going to support because I want to vote and I'll, you know, and I'll vote down the ticket, whatever candidate I'd like, but I'm not going to throw away my vote I, I apologize if I offend anyone with with ageism but it's it's reality it's my reality yeah I think it's also the the inherited truth of of the human species we we know uh, without having to explain it uh, what what happens to us <laughs> we can through, see it through the course I mean, it's of pretty time. it's pretty evident right i mean he's when just, you watch he's a speech a, he's a very clear example but we see it in our personal lives we see it with our own grandparents with elderly individuals in our churches and synagogues and in our communities so the, the charge of ageism i think is inapplicable and sort of and i'm being a bit frivolous by by raising it against you um but it need not be explained really um the fact that you feel uncomfortable it's put baked, it mildly it's baked into to our vote, dna to vote for to vote for a man who will be uh, 81 years of age when biden runs potentially runs again in 2024 now maybe we can raise that idea because it's it's a really interesting one um what well, let me ask you a question oh please <laughs> what goes into a family's thought process and i'll bring up fetterman and I'll bring up Biden. When this family pushes their husband, uh, father, grandfather forward into this realm without the, the self-care, the necessary self-care that they need to get better, they can't see that their husband, that their father, that their grandfather, the toll that something like this is taking on, on them. I mean, I just, for what, what's the end game? What's the purpose? So you can say that you're a senator or it's, that you can say that the, you were the president for, so to answer for your eight question, years? To answer your question, it's the fulfillment, the satisfaction of an insatiable hunger for power. 
That's all it is. It's not, it's certainly not to promote the well-being of said person. It's not to improve his status as, let's say, a stroke victim or, um, or someone seemingly suffering at least the earliest stages of dementia. Uh, it, it has no aim toward the amelioration of those, um, those afflictions. It is merely the familial augmentation, raising of power. That's the only answer I have for this because it's a disturbing, almost inhumane phenomenon to, and we spoke about this earlier, uh, taking the case of John Fetterman, a man who suffered a stroke of whose severity we really knew very little as a public. Um, now, of course, through the passage of time, we've come to learn that this stroke seems to have been quite debilitating, at least, if not physically, right, he's still capable of moving his appendages, then certainly linguistically, cognitively. This is something of which his family was aware from the very outset. After that stroke happens, you immediately know the area of the brain affected. You can see this on an MRI. You can hear it audibly when he tries to speak. And maybe one side of his mouth is, is drooping and he's unable to articulate words and the syntax is completely forsaken. The grammar is gone. He's making no sense at all. It's, I'm sure, devastating. Now, he wasn't a Cicero prior to this. He wasn't the most eloquent man um, ever to have uh, held a microphone in his hand and spoken into it. Uh, but I'm sure he could communicate himself in a more intelligible way. Think of that happening to mom, right? If she were to suffer a stroke. God forbid, and she was speaking like that, or she was acting in a certain way that was abnormal, or she couldn't raise her right arm above her head, would you then proceed to insist that she continue on with a demanding, taxing, difficult process of putting yourself out in front of the public, um, probably delaying any healing possibility that could transpire in that period of time, very integral period of time during which most healing does occur. Uh, and then setting her up or him up in this case for complete embarrassment in front of the entire nation on a live tel you know, television debate. Like yeah, imagine I mean, hu humanistically, I watched the debate, um, you know, we border Pennsylvania. I mean, New we're in New Jersey. Um, humanistically, I, I felt horrible for him, and that's that that that's sort of the origin, uh, the genesis of the question that I asked. Um, but I will say, I I gave him credit for for getting up there, and I turned to your mother, uh, my wife, and I said, you know what, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia likes an underdog. And, you know, he looked like an underdog. Yeah, an, an underdog is fine. Uh, and, you know, it's for that reason we go to the theater and we watch Invincible with Mark Wahlberg. And we watch a real underdog, number 83, get onto the field and, and <laughs> get a spot on the kickoff team. Right? That's fine. We're talking here about government at the highest level. Right? The Senate, the upper chamber 
the most august body representing its people in all the world. Underdogs are fine and good in, in stories like that, but we're talking about somebody who perhaps, by all evidence, lacks the cognitive uh, capacity to be able to execute his duties. Now, do you think as a Pennsylvanian and now as, as an American, speaking more broadly, because these senators affect you and I as, as American citizens, residents of different states, but American citizens nonetheless, his underdog status, I think, takes a secondary role to his inability to function. I would have thought that independents would have looked at that debate a little bit closer. I know that the Democrats knew what was on the line in the senatorial race, and it was clear the Republicans knew what was on the line in that senatorial race, meaning that it, the outcome could affect the balance of power in the Senate. So I, I would be very curious, I, I, again, we're traveling, so I don't know what the statistics are or were for independence and how they viewed Fetterman. But I can tell you that if you were looking for somebody who is an orator who could get up and and sort of debate or explain the position as to why the funds needed to come back to Pennsylvania or why this bill would be good for Pennsylvanians, um, it, based on that debate, which is all you can really debase, uh, all, all you can really base your decision on, other than pulling an R or a D, um, I don't think that he came across very strongly for independent voters. But again, do you think he, that it's that? Do you think it, that Dr. Mehmet Oz was so unpalatable that these independent voters of whom you speak simply went to Fetterman? I think he was probably viewed, and you know, we talked about this as a carpetbagger, as someone who came in. Uh, you know, he's got a residence in New Jersey. Um, you know, it's, I, I think there's something to be said for a candidate who is not necessarily, not necessarily born and raised, but he's, he's from the area. He's been from the area for a long period of time. He's paid taxes in the area. Um, he's voted in the area, he's got a you know a record of voting in the area, in local politics. So I think that goes a long way uh, for voters. It does, and some uh, you can look at uh, a counterexample in Hillary Clinton, who was a senator in New York after having uh, lived most of her life outside that state. So uh, yeah, I, I don't know the margin by which she. Well, won. You also have to look at the makeup of New York. So it's a predominantly Democratic city but then again she did have to win the primary but sure she had the high high um q high re, uh, name recognition sure do you think mehmet oz lacks high name recognition? oh no he had very high name recognition um so he didn't lack that he's generally a likable but when your mother and i on this long trip down to naples we had time to discuss some things and and she thought that fetterman was a candidate that got into it because he wanted to make a change. 
and that's why he's in politics. So certain elements. But a change for good or a change for ill? Well, what sort of no? A she, I think she thought well, that he look, wants to make a change. She, she didn't really well, I mean, know can, a lot about. It's great. His, I mean, it's great. His politics. It's it's a it's a fine thing to want change, but uh, change in what direction, right? So I think the the change if, if, that he wants to institute is not exactly the change of which my mother would be supportive if I know her. <laughs> at well, if all. you're not if you're not connected politically. And you're just looking at, well, l like most people, commercials. Um, we did watch a little bit of the debate. I watched more of the debate than she did. Um, and the overall look, that's sometimes what independent voters are, are, are looking for. They're just looking for something that connects. Maybe Oz felt a little fake, a little too Hollywood. Uh, not that... Not yeah, the, that uh, not that not that wearing a sweatshirt around all the time is you know my cup of tea. You should dress a little bit more professionally. Yeah. Uh, but maybe some that type of look uh, generated some interest with yeah, younger the, voters. The, the common line is that Oz sort of speaks conservatism as a second language. He he didn't seem completely comfortable with the positions uh, that he was articulating uh, more intelligibly, of course, than Mr. Fetterman, uh, but. He he didn't seem to really live those those ideas. It, they seem to have been somewhat novel to him, as though he were not only um, introducing himself to a new state in Pennsylvania, but also to a whole new political um, mindset. And I think that was disconcerting to a lot of to a lot of Pennsylvanians, they con independent and conservative leaning ones. I think probably a lot of Republicans were not especially keen to vote for a man like this. Mm -hmm. Well, it was a tight primary. Very tight. And I think what pulled Oz over was the support of Trump. Interestingly enough, bec interestingly enough, Oz sort of separated himself from Trump during the, um, during the campaign trail, uh, during the time on the campaign trail. Not separated in a bad way, but there was not a whole lot of mention in his commercials. So he was looking for the main street, uh, mainstream vote. You know, he wanted the people that Trump may have pushed away. Right, and, and Trump, I, if he hasn't already, he will um, use that as evidence. The fact <laughs> that his name was omitted from those commercials will use that as, as evidence for for Oz's defeat. Defeat, yeah. <laughs> it's an unfalsifiable yeah. theory. Take credit for everything. It, that's it's precisely and, and, and labeling. And Trump was actually everything. quoted as having said that in a, in the latest uh, Wall Street Journal interview in which he participated. I believe it was with the Wall Street Journal. Basically, he said that um, you know, for every victory, I claim uh, I claim um, attribution, and for every defeat. You know, yeah, I, I, uh, I distance myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the old saying that success has uh, you know a thousand parents, whereas a defeat has is an orphan. Right. It's the very same idea as that. <laughs> uh, so, and to revisit that initial question that you asked me about Fetterman's family uh, and and Fetterman, I feel the same way about the Biden family, and that's probably even more pronounced. They they experienced. Um, an affliction that's much more insidious and slow and obvious 
Um, maybe not obvious. I'm sorry. Of course, Fetterman's infirmity is more obvious, right? One day you wake up, you're fine. The next day, after a stroke, you're, you're quite debilitated. That's more obvious. Um, so Biden's cognitive condition is more insidious. But I think, as a family, you would notice the mental degeneration of, of an elderly, uh, let's say, grandfather, uncle, whomever, whatever, however he is a, uh, affiliated to you in that family, in that familial structure. Uh, but I think the same thing is the same thing applies really is that they, the family, and especially Jill, Doctor Jill Biden, had a um, not not just an inkling, but uh, a clear understanding of uh, where this man was mentally and how far he had fallen. You're you're not really saving the republic uh, by the being soul the soul of the republic. Yeah, yeah, the soul of the. You're yeah. not really doing but that. But we will it's move on. The we'll move on in a different way. Right. It's simply the gratification of a lust for power, and that I think inflamed the the motivations of the Biden family as much as it did the Fetterman family. And it's for that reason that Biden has run for president three times, once successfully. Uh, will do so again, likely in 2024, um, when he really has no no reason to do so, no good reason to do so, and I don't think it's um, for the good of the republic that he that he try. Now, let me ask you. I just I just want to go on record and, and please wish Fetterman a speedy recovery. Oh, as do I don't I, oh, I don't oh, wish what he's going through on anyone, um, and and uh, and I hope he gets well, and I hope he gets better. Uh, unfortunately, I think he postponed some of his wellness by, you know, by pursuing this. Of course, yeah, I think valuable time was was lost or at least misallocated. And uh, we discussed this earlier as well. Uh, in any time you have a, a stroke, a, a devastating neurologic injury of that sort, be it small or large, it, it still is devastating um, and can take quite a late, long time uh, for for its recovery. But typically, within the span of six months, the most progress uh, will be made. At about that six-month point, all the improvements that have accrued to you will probably be those uh, with which you live the rest of your life. Any deficits that remain outstanding will probably linger for quite some time. Now, uh, progress can be made in the next six months, up to 12 months, but uh, you usually won't find the complete restoration of a, of a faculty um, beyond that period of time. So yes, we join in wishing him the speediest of all recoveries, and, and I do hope that he, that he becomes um, whole. But from a very objective standpoint, it, it seems unlikely that that much drastic improvement will be made in the in the forthcoming months. So, with that said, I want to raise this uh, this scenario with you. Uh, it seems even more likely now, given the results of these uh, of this election, that President Biden will seek re-election in two thousand and twenty-four. Though they, the Democrat Party, will lose control of the House of Representatives, the fact that they lost by much less than was expected means that he'll get a little boost right now. And it means that there's at least tepid support for 
his agenda, <laughs> which to me seems almost incomprehensible, but perhaps is the case right now. So I want you to take me through your thought process as an independently minded voter uh, in 2024. You imagine that President Biden will be the candidate, will vie for the presidency again. Against whom would you like to see him run? And do you think it's wise for the Democrats to run him again in 2024? It's interesting. When, when I was reading, um, when there was this red wave that was anticipated and the blame game with Biden was starting, was starting by the Democrats, uh, I think he's basically shielded himself from some of that. It has empowered him a little bit. I, I know this. This isn't pop. Believe it or not, this is not a popular candidate with either friends uh, uh, that I have on both sides of the aisle. My Repo some of my Republican friends want to see uh, Donald Trump run, and they do not want to see DeSantis run. Some of my Democratic friends definitely do not want to see. DeSantis run. The media really hasn't had a chance to sink their, although they're starting and they're trying. I think DeSantis is pretty, uh, pretty astute. He's he's a very good speaker. He's a very smart man, uh, and he handles the media very very well. And he I, has self control. Yes, and uh, I don't see a lot coming out on Twitter from him. Um, so you're also not on Twitter. Yeah, that's that's, that's true. I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> you don't see a lot from from anyone. But out but on but I really like the way he governed. We've talked about we've talked about this. I I like the way that he's governed down here in Florida, and I think there's a lot of I'll call them New York, New Jersey Republicans or even some Democrats who, you know, there was a housing boom down here in Florida who are who are coming to this state because they like this form of government. It's more free. If, if you're a business owner, I think it's more business friendly. Uh, I think they handled the COVID policy a lot better than it's been handled across the country, especially in light of the fact that they're finding the facts that they're finding that a lot of the a lot of the defenses that we were using against COVID may not have been effective and may have been perhaps the wrong decision to make in the first place. Closing down the government, forcing uh, state employees to get vaccinated or they'll lose their job. And we found that, that that's turning out to be a big problem for the state of New York. I will say that it, I wouldn't have wanted to govern during COVID. And that's probably why I'm not in government um it was a tough time i mean it's it it still is a, there's still remnants of decisions that need to be made but we we never really encountered something of this magnitude before you had operation warp speed which was which was bringing a vaccine forward i got to give donald trump a lot of credit for that for bringing a uh a think tank together for that. Uh, I, w I wish they would do that with 
you know, fossil fuel here in the United States, bring together a think tank and 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 make it viable for refineries and and oil producers to to you know to build up our supplies and to bring down the cost. I think this winter is going to be. I know I'm getting a little bit off topic here, but I think this winter is going to be very very tough when when people look at the prices of home heating oil, natural gas, electricity. It's it's going to be like playing roulette when when people need to fill a 200 gallon tank of home heating oil for the winter. You know, they have to play they have to play that like they're playing the stock market. They have to hope that the price of a gallon goes down and if it's up they're, they're going to have a delivery of 50 gallons instead of 200 gallons in hopes that the price is going to go down. I mean, I think this winter up in the Northeast and across the country is going to be very, very telling. I think once people see that the prices to heat, it's not only gasoline that's going to be affected, but natural gas. Um, I think we're going to have to do an operation warp speed to be energy independent again and to be the world supplier of energy. See, I don't think that an operation is necessary to be energy independent. I don't think that uh, we need to um, divert our taxes toward uh, a think tank by whom such a such an idea can be conceived and, and put into action. I think it's quite obvious what needs to happen is we need to bolster domestic supply. We need to uh, enable drillers, those uh, <laughs> nefarious drillers, to be able to do the job that they do, um, to lessen restrictions on the communication of energy between states. I know New York has issues with that, and some of the um, the, the states uh, in the New England area I, are having I, difficulty receiving energy because because basically it's because of interstate commerce, and there's difficulty in the movement of energy through pipelines. I, so, I, so I, I totally agree with that. The, the reason why I say think tank and I think it's an off-ramp for the current administration who is, and I mean Biden, who is a hard no on energy. I think he should soften his policy, but I think he needs an off-ramp to be able to save face to be able to do that. Why do you think he's been so intransigent? Why do you think he won't take that softening approach, especially uh, at a time when we are facing what could be a very uncomfortable winter for you up in New Jersey? I will be comfortable poolside down here in the <laughs> free is, state of Florida. That is the question of the century. Mm. I cannot figure it out. Uh, we have friends and we have relatives in California and the governor out there is mandating electric cars by, I forget what the year is. 2030, it, I believe. 2030. I thought it was might have been 2035, but it might be 2030. Well, it's the same state that has rolling brownouts that is encouraging people not to raise their thermostats above 80 degrees or even higher at times. So they can't support the electric needs that they have now moving to electric cars it's it's just really i i for the life of me 
I don't understand why. We, I don't I don't remember the war, the battle in which th- these words were spoken, but it always reminds me of the famous American admiral who when faced with the possibility of sure destruction uh, announced to his <laughs> to his navy, uh, "Damn the torpedoes full, full, speed, speed. full steam ahead." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's it's an irrational response to impending doom, but it seems to be that um, of which the democratic um, elected officials are um, most the most um, ardent and vocal supporters. They we- seem intent on continuing down the primrose path of clean green energy right but we are which will all be left in an immiserated impoverished cold state yeah but we are it's a the hypocrisy in this is off the charts describe it to me so the hypocrisy is that we want to see ourselves as a green country we're reducing our carbon emissions we are reducing our uh, use of fossil fuel. However, we are importing it from other countries. So we, so the hypocrisy is we're green, they're not. So we can do it cleaner. We have all types of regulations. We have emissions monitoring stations. We have on on every smokestack, we have monitors that monitor emissions for coal-fired facilities. Now, I'm not saying we should go back to coal-fired facilities, but we know how much sulfur is going into the air. We know that when we're drilling for oil, our, our seals are better. We're using modern equipment. We're using better equipment. You're not gonna t- you're not gonna sit here and tell me that someone and someone course, who's getting petroleum in Venezuela right. is using the best gaskets. <sighs> and also, there's the treatment of employees. You know that in America, employees are typically being paid well, if not in most cases better than their foreign counterparts, um, and and treated more humanely and and, and more respectfully. So so we're gonna blindly continue. We're, we're not, I mean, believe me, you, you know. You do mean blindly. It's but, going to be dark. <laughs> <laughs> but you know I was a proponent of electric vehicles 15 years ago. And you turned me on to uh, EVs at right. a very young age. And I've, this, is, this but, is, but 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 this is something about which I've thought a lot because I've long been a proponent of electric ve- vehicles and, the, and, and very inspired by the prospect of a transfer from gasoline-powered to electric-powered. I remember when you first introduced to me the Tesla Roadster and then watching that company develop and um, distribute, mass-distribute these wonderful electric cars, um, all the while thinking that this was the way. And I think within the past year or so, it's on the subject of energy that my mind has shifted most drastically. I, I actually want to ask you that as well. Like, through... Settled opinions should never be um, should never be um, completely immune to being shaken. <laughs> and one of I my agree, s- and we and and we do that all the time. Yeah, yeah. And and one <laughs> of my settled opinions for the past few years was 
the superiority of, of green energy. Um, uh, no, I wasn't a, an environmental, uh, a, um, um, someone who was completely beholden to the green agenda. But I always had a, a great hope in its, in its ultimate success. But to me, it seems like it is at this point and probably forever will be an inferior path toward energy efficiency and sustainability and affordability. Um, so, so that's something as, as a free thinking individual who, who prides himself on being very intellectually curious and open-minded, but also well-educated, that's the one topic um, on which I've had to change my opinions the most my thinking the most. Uh, let me ask you, has there been any one topic like that in your life, in your thinking over the past year or two, that's seen a radical change based on the reception of new information? I, I concur with you with energy. Um, again, you know, I was a proponent even before the Tesla Roadster. I, I watched people converting their cars with lead acid batteries and we're just not there yet and we may are, never be we need to transition but the transition is going to be a lot slower but what if the transition what if the transition isn't feasible and and isn't even desirable that's a great point um we we assume i mean we're we're in a pretty affluent area here in Naples, but there are some poorer areas in Naples where there's a lot of people who work uh, very hard. Um, they don't have a lot of extra money. I have family members who work very hard and don't have any extra money. And they cannot afford a $60,000 electric vehicle. Right, and now you're looking at it from the point of consumption which is important. I guess my mind first goes to the point of extraction. Think of all the components necessary for the construction of, let's say, an electric vehicle battery, the lithium, the, the nickel, right? The magnesium, whatever it might be, right? Manganese, the, the list of Cobalt, the list of elements by which that powerful little battery or large battery is, is, is empowered. Where does one extract these minerals? How do they come into being? How does one build a battery? You go to Africa. You strip down the land, <laughs> clear yeah. away the trees. Yeah. You bring in all of your heavy diesel-powered trucks. Right to raise the forest right to dig into the earth right probably to inf compel young african boys to go into these mines and dig out these materials to shovel them up to the surface to haul them to schlep them <laughs> to the <laughs> trucks. New nice new jersey word <laughs> that's a jewish word uh, that's my yiddish uh, to then transport them to the coast, to ship them to a factory in wherever it may be, the gigafactory, wherever they're making the Teslas right. these days. It could, be in, it could be in Asia, it could be in Texas. A and all of that energy consumption in the production process. So that's not even looking at the point of purchase. 
when uh, you know Aunt Laura can't afford the 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 purchase of a new Tesla vehicle, right? That's at the very end point. And even then, when you own that Tesla vehicle, or I, I hate to use Tesla as the example, but it could but be, it's yeah, just the Kia, most prominent, it could be anyone. right? Volvo, it, it's Ford, Mustang, Tesla for electric vehicle. Tesla, and uh, that's probably a name, a that consequence of its of its. It's like a band, prestige, band yeah, band brand. <laughs> Kleenex, yeah. yeah. The same idea applies. It's it's a testament to Tesla's success in this industry that it basically has become synonymous with electric vehicles. That's no small thing. But um, taking an electric car and looking at its its um, release of pollutants while on the road is not an insignificant matter. I mean, you're looking at particulate pollution. Uh, you're looking at the fact that you need to charge that battery. Well, how do you charge a battery? Well, you need electricity. And whence does electricity come? Well, there's your question. And it's, it's sort of the second, <laughs> it's it's like one step removed from visibility. So you don't see where that ele- how that electric box is being paneled into which you plug your Tesla. Or I should say, you know, the, the wire that protrudes from it that right. is then plugged into your battery. But what what is generating that electricity? Well, it has to be something. Is it a gas generator? Is it a coal generator? Is it a steam? Is it wind? Is it solar? It has to be something. Could be and, a, a mixture of it all. It could be a mixture of yeah. all. But in most cases, it's, it's not going to be solar. Right. It's not going to be nuclear, which is, of course, the best and most potent and sustainable and probably safest form of energy. Uh, it, it's it's not going to be, uh, you know, uh, a water mill. <laughs> yeah. Well, you you bring up a great point with the the extraction of these materials. Like there is no one, and, and you were out of the house, you were down here by then, but eh, maybe you, you might remember, but there is no bigger fan than Gold Rush, Friday nights, right? So it's it's usually- it's The television a, show Gold, Gold Rush. Rush on, yeah. I believe so, Discovery? Yeah, I think yeah. so. So it's a group of people who go up to, uh, it could the be Yukon. Alaska, yeah. it could be, Wherever there's pockets of gold, could be Colorado, could be Wyoming, and they are absolutely devastating the land. The more the more I watch, because I was, you know, everybody wants to strike it rich. You everybody wants to win a lottery ticket, and you know when you watch shows like this, you're watching men. Work, well, it's it's actually men do physical labor. Men and women do physical labor, so that's something to behold because. There's not a lot of that going around anymore, but you watch them fixing the machines and, but there's these giant cranes and they are just strip, stripping the earth. Now they have to restore it in some fashion because it's, you know, it's the United States and there are certain rules for, for the environment getting back to the, our America or the United States' hypocrisy with with drilling for petroleum products, so and and our rules and regulations, which are probably far superior to other countries. Now, if that same strip mining is occurring in Brazil, it's occurring in China, it's occurring in Africa. We are devastating the earth to get at cobalt, manganese, and some of these other precious metals. They're not, you know, they're not easily found. So. That's another factor that you have to look at. So the overall, is it green? Well, you're you're devastating the earth. You know, you're, 
and there's no environmental control, are you replacing the earth that you're pulling away in Africa or the same as they would be in Alaska? Uh, again, the hypocrisy. You know, we, we do it cleaner, we do it better. Um, and that's why I think, you know, we should not be depending on Venezuela and some of these third world nations for our petroleum. We shouldn't be begging Saudi Arabia we shouldn't be begging the OPEC nations when, when, when we can be oil independent. We, again, I, I think there needs to be a bridge. We're going to see a bridge. We're not, we're absolutely not there yet. We can't store solar energy right now. There's not a battery system in place that can store solar energy with, with gas fired energy, gas fired boilers. You turn on the boiler and you, you fire up the grid it's it's that simple if it's nighttime you're not going to be generating any electricity and there's no storage available for it and there will always be a redundancy in solar energy in wind energy that redundancy being natural gas right being coal and that, there, and, oh, that always will be in existence and, and natural gas shouldn't get a bad reputation natural yeah, think, ga natural think... gas fired Boilers I, now I are so fail. efficient. Yeah, I think people fail to appreciate a, a few things as it pertains to energy. One is that these are just means to an end. So the end is what? The end is the facilitation of, of movement, let's say, right? Of a vehicle or of a mill or of anything. The, the end is warmth. The means is the energy to produce that that end. Uh, so that is the calculation. If you want to be a civilized society that enjoys all the creature comforts um, to which we've become accustomed, you need materials that will produce them. And that's what these commodities are. Now, they can be uh, extracted in more or less dirty and uncleanly ways. Um, they can be burned in better or worse ways. Uh, you can burn wood for energy. You can burn dung for energy. You can burn coal. You can burn gas. You can burn all sorts of different things. Unfortunately, if you want to live a certain comfortable life, there's a consequence to that. The consequence is, in any chemical reaction, you'll have <laughs> the production of some noxious materials that hopefully the environment will be able to absorb and, and at least survive. Um, but I think this green I utopian idea is... is Elevating something above the individual human. We're, we're no longer looking at the, the sanctity and the well-being and the health of, of the individual who needs to be warm throughout the course of the winter, who needs to drive safely and reliably to work right, in a, in a suburban setting, who needs the ability to turn on the lights at 5 o'clock uh, in the evening, on a on a late January day, 
And what we're left with is an almost misanthropic human hating agenda where we're extolling energy, green energy, that's not yet viable, affordable, um, and sustainable at the expense of the humans whom it's supposed to benefit. Uh, so I think that in a crisis like this that we're facing now, we're beginning to realize that we've had it mostly wrong for, for many years. We're realizing, as the Europeans are, that that these commodities are means to an end. That the Germans need to heat their homes just as much as the Americans. How do you do it? Well, you have, a, you have an array of options, right? Solar is unavailable. Wind is unavailable. Some things are very powerful, but perhaps have consequences. What do you do? Do you suffer? <laughs> do you, do you um, endure exorbitantly high prices at the pump? Um, high prices on your heating bill, on your gas bill, um, all in pursuit of an unattainable <laughs> ideal at the end of this? Or do you prioritize the well-being of the individual and the health of the society in which he lives? Yeah, I mean, you bring up a lot of, a lot of interesting points. And, and, and as you were talking, one of the things that I thought about is I don't want to call it a deception, but I'll say that the current administration has been less than transparent with what they're trying to accomplish in terms of green energy. So every once in a while, someone from the administration will come out and say, well, you know, the price of gas is a little bit higher, but you know we have this these electric cars. So I think it would be very unpopular. Well, that's why I think it's being introduced a little at a time because I think it would be very unpopular with the American public to say, or maybe it wouldn't be unpopular to say, we're facing a con a con consequential global warming we're going to move we're going to clearly move to solar and wind you're going to have to pay a little a lot more at the pump we're going to move you away from gas-fired automobiles you're going to pay a lot more in heating i don't think americans are ready to to buy that but that's the agenda. That's the policy. But it's the agenda. But so it's, I don't it's, understand. It's, it's veiled. Right. But I don't understand. To the, to the, it, it certainly well, is. It, it deliberately it's is. It's completely I, veiled my, my, to, the, my, to the average American. My point, uh, my point is this is what you want. This is the agenda on which you ran. You promised, uh, you being President Biden and his handlers, uh, you wanted to close down oil refineries. You wanted to stop federal leasing of of uh, these lands from which you can extract oil and gasoline so if this was the idea own it and and that's that's I, fine and, i agree and the people will have the ability in two years time 
either to accept that policy or to reject it. Right. And 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 the issue that I have is they're not owning it. Right. It's right. it's cloak and dagger. It's, you know, watch watch this hand while I do this with that hand. It's not real it's not a real clear, hey, this is our national policy. This is where we're going. At least Gavin Newsom is saying this is what we're doing. I, I think I think it's moronic the direction that he's moving in. Uh, it is. But it at is. least he's saying but, the quiet part less, out loud. Well, it's 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 less insulting. I, I, right. mean, I don't know about right. you, but I feel quite insulted uh, as right. an American citizen to be treated in this way, to be treated as a child, to be uh, deliberately misled uh, in, into thinking that um, what I'm seeing happen is not truly happening. Uh, and, and I think that's something at, at which a lot of Americans will increasingly uh, recoil. So we could probably go into a lot of things, but we're already over the one hour mark. <laughs> so maybe we will continue this conversation with a part two. There we go. Tomorrow night. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to have a drink. <laughs> I would encourage it. And I might join you in that uh, libation. Very doubtful. <laughs> yeah, it might happen. It might happen. So that's that's perfect timing. Let's. And there we'll plan for a part two, perhaps, tomorrow. Tomorrow. Um, but this was the first Finneran family conversation <laughs> on Finneran's Wake. And they're not all this interesting, Please. I can tell you. Oh, they're, they, they only get more interesting. <laughs> so I hope that you all enjoyed listening to this very candid conversation. We're, we're here on an absolutely beautiful November evening. Um, in southwest Florida, as we as we mentioned earlier, uh, out on the lanai, just listening to the to the crickets, to the birds, uh, looking up at the, the verdant scenery. It's it's really gorgeous, and uh, I'm very thankful to have my father down here with me and to be able to talk about events, to talk about politics. Uh, this is a a real privilege. It's not something that I think a lot of sons have the ability uh, to do well thank you and so, and um hopefully i press the record button <laughs> <laughs> if not it was a stimulating delightful conversation regardless so with that why don't we hit uh stop and we'll <laughs> <laughs> sounds great and we'll go to dinner all righty Shout, Daniel. 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 Shout, Daniel.